This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. All right, Um, home groups. Let me say a word about that uh, since Jake and Julie just referenced that on screen. You'll find on your, or in your program, there's a half sheet in there that lists the home groups and, and rough general areas based on where the church is. I think next week we'll probably put either subdivisions or crossroads in there uh, so you guys can get a better feel for that. But I really want to encourage you um, to commit to a home group this summer. We know that many of you are going to miss two or three of the, of the eight weeks. That's the nature of summer um, in the U.S. We know that. But committing together around the Word of God weekly with other believers and other uh, men and women exploring faith in Christ in a home setting is so significant. It's closer to what the church has done more consistently apart from large gathering uh, worship like this over the past 2,000 years of our history than anything else that you could do. So I really encourage you to jump into that. You're going to get to know some people that you haven't known before. You're going to get to know some people better. Um, And because of the model of them being sermon-based, we're going to get an opportunity to hear from God through his word, through Acts, and an eight-week series through the book of Acts this summer. And then get to dig into that as groups and find out that week, discover how God is putting legs on that in our lives, ask questions, pray for one another, share so if you take that half sheet and, and you want to join a group, just put the group leader's last name anywhere on your connection card, right? You can also sign up online, sign up on the app. Um, but if you want to do it this morning, you've got your connection card there. You've got your half sheet. Look through those groups and just write the leader's last name on the connection card anywhere. We'll be uh, doing this for about the next three weeks as we sign up, uh, moving toward the kickoff of those groups. So keep those handy, and you'll hear more and more about uh, sermon-based home groups through the summer, uh, eight weeks in total as we go. So uh, this morning, we're going to finish Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We'll be specifically looking at verses 16 through 23. 16 through 23 of Colossians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and be turning there to Colossians chapter 2. Part of what Paul has done so far has built his case, his argument, for the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ himself. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2 are really Paul's apex of that argument, um, that everything that we can know and can be and need in God is available to us, and we already actually have in Christ. The supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Now he moves in verses 16 through 23, uh, to some words of warning, some words of warning about being intimidated by false teachers. False teachers who were um, in the life of the Colossian believers saying, look, we know that you're in Christ. We get that, we accept that. But you're going to experience more of Christ. You're going to experience more fullness and more of the Christian life if you'll do these things. If you'll follow these ceremonies, these practices, You're not quite there yet, right? You're almost there, but you've got to add in these other things to really have uh, the fullness of it in the full picture. And Paul is very firm in his response to those 
who peddled what he called these idle notions. Let's uh, read through Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Then I'll say a few more words about this in general. Paul writes, beginning with verse 16, Therefore, therefore, in light of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, in light of the fact that you are indeed complete in Christ, do not let anyone judge you or pass judgment on you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Can we just agree that Paul didn't pull punches He's writing to people who knew exactly the individuals Paul was talking about. You understand that, right? He's writing to a church in Colossae about false teachers whom the the listeners would know exactly by name that Paul was calling them out. Somehow we've gotten twisted in the church today and we believe that's almost unspiritual and Christ liked to do that. Friends, that's the call of leadership in a church is to protect the church from people like this. And Paul is never shy about it. Verse 19, they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Their false humility, or with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul is, he's very firm here in response to these false teachers. And and lest you think it's just in Colossae or to the Christians in the church in Colossae that that Paul is this firm with, let me read to you from Galatians 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4 of Galatians, Paul writes to the Christians in the region of Galatia, And says, this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul's saying, at stake is the very truth of the gospel itself. And we, the apostolic leaders and teachers of the church, did not give in, put up with, submit to, fail um, to come against these people, not one little inch. Right? This morning, it's not Colossae, it's Metro Atlanta. It's not uncircumcision or maybe 
dietary rules or special days. It's something else. But make no mistake about it, there are still people through sincere and insincere motivation in churches that live with a kind of Christ plus rules mentality. Christ plus rules leads to what you think Christ alone is doing. And what Paul is saying in verse 16 right out of the gate here is do not submit to that kind of legalistic teaching. He's saying you and I are free in Christ from legalism. We're free in Christ from legalism. The particular issue here, and I like that, that Paul really nails down to what exactly is going on in the church in Colossae. The, the issue here was special diets and, and special days. Now these seem to be centered around Jewish ceremonialism, perhaps um, possibly with an overtone of, of pagan ideology as you look at this entire passage. But there is a group among them saying, no, we get that you're in Christ, but you must be in Christ and observe these special particular celebrations throughout the year, and you have to eat and not eat this, really not eat this, and not drink this. That's what it means, and you're going to miss out if you engage in that. Let me bounce over to Romans chapter 14. Paul's confronting this throughout the church. Romans 14, verses 1 through 4. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters or secondary matters, we could say. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. I knew that was the case. <laughs> the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So in Romans 14, in these first few verses here, you've got uh, the vegetarians and the meat eaters. You've got these two groups in the church, and they're going at it. And Paul is reminding them that we actually are one in Christ. And he's saying the most rules-bound ones who often feel the most spiritual are actually the ones that Paul describes as having the weaker faith. And he tells those that know they're free in Christ not to look down on them. And he tells the ones that are still bound in these rules and this rigidness not to judge those who are living in the freedom that Christ has given them. And I just, I want to say this morning that legalism always has a cultural face. It always has a cultural face. The rules are always culturally based rather than biblically based. I'll say more about this in a minute, but what I mean is that, that the rules that legalists and anybody of Christ followers will want you to submit to and come up with, uh, they're never global. They're always given to specific cultures or regions, but they're presented as being the biblical truth, the way to live 
as followers of Christ. Now, I want to give a quick word of clarification. Look back at verse 16. Paul says, not to let anyone judge you or pass judgment on you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So you've got special diets and special days going on here. Uh, the, the dietary rules, many of you would have some idea of with its roots in Jewish ceremonial law. Uh, drinking commentators believe that some uh, people were infiltrating the church there and telling them uh, with a distortion of old Levitical laws and understandings around certain issues and certain times that they couldn't drink wine right? They couldn't drink wine. And then you've got these ceremonies and these festivals. And then it says, or a Sabbath day. And I just want to keep you from confusing that. Also, Paul in Romans 14.5 says, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. I don't want you to hear Paul saying something he's not I don't want you to hear Paul saying that you and I are still not created for and intended by God to observe a Sabbath day of rest on a weekly basis. We're still made for that. And and rather than teach all around it, I I would like to read a quote by a New Testament scholar uh, named John Murray who taught at Westminster Theological Seminary uh, for many years. It's a longer quote, but it's a good one. And if you'll follow with me, I think you'll get an idea just as a word of clarification about this. The Sabbath institution is a creation ordinance. What he means is God has instituted it from the very beginning for human beings. Genesis 2, where we have it, was incorporated into the moral law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Therefore, it is not set aside with the ceremonial law, but has abiding significance. The abiding sanctity of each recurring seventh day as the memorial of God's rest in creation and of Christ's exaltation in his resurrection is not to be regarded as in any way impaired by Romans 14.5, which I just read, or I would tell you by Colossians 2.16. This reference is to the ceremonial law which has been set aside, not to the moral law to which we still stand or still called. Not to be accepted by God, but to live to show our love for God, having been set free in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Murray hits the nail right specifically on the head then. That God has given the Sabbath as a gift for human beings who he knows needs it. It's a reminder to us that we don't make the world spin. We don't keep life going. We're not that necessary. We're able to sit back and to delight ourselves in the Lord and his creation and in friends and in family and in good food and in rest on a Sabbath day. So I don't want you to confuse that for this. Look at 17 through 19. He says, these things are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Just as as your own shadow is not your substance, but it is something pointing to your reality. That's what all these things were. And Paul is saying you're in danger of actually trading the substance, the actual thing, for its shadow, for for things that were precursors and pointers toward the coming Messiah, Christ himself. 
Very real danger. Jesus dealt with this. We said last week or maybe the week before in Mark chapter 7 as Jesus is getting some accusations by the Pharisees and Sadducees for the, around the freedom that his disciples lived in and walked in as they were with him. Um, and Jesus just said, man, you guys have a really, really uh, bad habit of setting aside the commands of God for the commands and traditions of your fathers. All the ceremonial stuff you did in your past was pointing toward me, but I'm here now. I'm here now. And you're still holding on to all that old stuff. You're still trapped in this system that only existed at its best, given by God as a good and gracious gift to point people toward their need and toward the one who was coming, toward the nature and provision of God. We always have this tendency to confuse the shadow for the substance. And Paul says, don't let anyone who delights in false humility, <laughs> false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. There's some confusion here about what's going on, but as Paul hashes it out, he says, such a person also goes into great detail about, how, about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. He says, they see themselves as deeply spiritual. They go on and on about their own personal walk with God, all the things they do, all the things they've received from God, all the things they experience in God. He says, they're actually displaying a false humility puffed up by their own unspiritual mind. And then he says uh, a, a really um, profound thing in verse nine, 19, I'm sorry, verse 19. He says, they have lost connection with the head. Now, if Paul says they have lost connection with the head, it implies what? That at one time they had connection with the head, that is Christ. And Paul says somehow they've lost it. They've begun walking back again in legalism and maybe added to it some of the pagan practices and superstition that seemed so close to what they had already known. He said it's actually the head, and as you look at Paul's language in Ephesians and in Colossians and other places, he's talking about Jesus Christ as the head, the source of our life as a church. That this head is the one that causes the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews to grow as God causes it to grow. He says, they've lost connection with the one who produces actual spiritual growth. That connection's been severed, and yet they go around inside the body so puffed up with such a degree of false humility and spirituality. And he says, don't let them, don't let them disqualify you. Don't let them look down on you. Don't let them judge you. Paul's coming straight at them. Straight at them. Let me uh, read to you a few verses from 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, lest you, lest you get caught up by sort of um, uh, apocalyptic enders in the church, who, you know, anytime uh, some guy gets some bandwidth and you have a David Koresh type person out there, for those of you that have that memory, they're like, that's it, 
this is the end. Paul's writing this about when he's living, right? He's saying we're seeing this in our time. Writing to Timothy, who would carry this message on to Ephesus. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Now listen to the particular issue here. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Paul was never shy in calling out and confronting legalistic teachers in the church. He knew that too much was at stake, too much in your life, and too much with regard to the truth of the gospel itself. And Paul is saying, man, you're obsessing about all of this stuff, and it doesn't matter where food comes from. And he's speaking particularly to Jewish people who have this background, this sort of um, very fundamental background about looking at these things. And he said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who grew the cow or where the cow started from or uh, who killed it or where it went through or who butchered it or what happened if it went into this temple and out of that temple and lands on your plate eventually, whatever's left of it. He said, if it's not poisoned, thank God for it and enjoy it. Thank God for it and enjoy it. Now, this is not a call to gluttony. This is not a call to drunkenness. This is not a, a call to loose living. It's simply a statement of truth. That everything that God has given us is good. It's only in our abuse of it that things are corrupted. I said earlier that legalism always has a cultural face. That the rules are always culturally based, not, not biblically based. I think many of us in here, especially if you've been in church, if you have much of a church history, um, we can think of people who sought to lay on us a bunch of rules which were supposed to make us more complete in Christ. Christ plus rules is the cultural face of legalisms of legalism, and that changed a little bit over time. It changes from place to place. Um, you can you can see this in dress, where you have uh, different groups that look down on one another, trying to maybe force one another to dress in a certain way to suit up or suit down. Uh, it's interesting. I said a few weeks ago we're at this interesting place in church history with regard to being unified as a cultural body, uh, where. Uh, we have a generation or two uh, who will be suspect of people preaching like me rather than being in a suit. Uh, and they just, they just, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't sit well with them. Um, and then you've got another generation or two younger who don't trust people who are standing where I'm standing all suited up. Right? They're like, I don't trust anybody like that. I know they're, they're, they're selling something false. They're peddling something. Underneath that suit is somebody I probably wouldn't like. And so we try to say, well, this is the way that spiritual people do it. We used to talk that way about tattoos. That horse has left the barn now. So uh, men, women, it doesn't matter, right? That's just kind of where we are right now. But it used to, they, we used to be very firm. There were places in churches where they truly did not believe you could be a Christian and have a tattoo. And man, it would, it would cause them to catch on fire over things like that. We do it with music, and I, I hear this here at other places where they'll be like, 
man, this is really God's music. This is reverent music. This is worship music. And other people say, man, this stuff is really where the life is and the spirit is and the movement of God is. That's not biblical. It's cultural. It's cultural. I was talking with a couple of local pastors the other day, and they were telling me about a church that used to be here. It's not a shock that it's no longer in the area. But on their sign outside, uh, they had a line that said, KJV only, exclamation mark. Now, some of you won't know what that means at all. God bless you. Um, Those of you laughing know that that means King James Version only. They were proud of that, which meant that all they were concerned about coming through their doors were already professing believers who come from the thinnest of thinnest of narrowest tribes in church life. But I've I've been in these circles where they'll really come at you if you use this translation instead of that translation. They'll flat out tell you that's not of God. That's crazy. This is cultural stuff. Maybe the biggest issue in the South and in in denominations like the SBC would be around alcohol. And you guys know this. This ship has really sailed too. But it's this idea that you can't be a Christian and drink alcohol, which will disqualify Jesus and Paul and a whole host of other people throughout Christian history, Calvin and Luther and Augustine. I could go on and on and on and on. Really everybody but recent Southern Americans who are SBCers. Right? But people will absolutely come undone over this. And it's cultural. It is not biblical. Now, there are warnings all through Scripture about the abuse of alcohol, including the New Testament, partly because New Testament believers drank alcohol. And yes, it was real, it wasn't grape juice, right? But Scripture gives us all kinds of warnings about overindulging in anything being led in anything rather than the spirit, right? The problem with the abuse of alcohol or the abuse of food is that you have something driving you, something controlling your thought processes and your decisions other than the spirit of God. It's the same issue with anger. It's the same issue with jealousy. It's the same issue uh, with greed. We could go on and on. And Paul is warning them. He's saying, you've got people in your midst that are telling you this stuff and they're telling you, you, you have to live this way to actually be in Christ, to experience the fullness. And I come from a church background and denomination where um, we were actually quite good at making what is peripheral central and making what is central peripheral. Taking secondary issues and making them primary um, and in so doing, pushing primary issues out into a place of secondary issues. And when we do that, we lose the heart of God. We lose the heart of God revealed in Christ who's making all things new. Who's put out a welcome mat and said all are welcome. Come to me. Now, let's look at verses 20 through 23 again briefly. Since you died with Christ, he's saying since you've been united with Christ in his death to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things 
that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. What he's saying here is not that, that especially the ones related to Jewish religious life, didn't have a place. They were given some of them. Now, we expanded on them as we have a tendency to do as human beings. Somebody says, here's the lines, and we go, okay, but to keep from crossing here, let's draw one here. Unless we bump up against that, let's put one here, right? And we just go on and on. And we, all, with all of this foolish stuff that we can't obey ourselves, right? But Paul is saying, in the day of Christ, now that Christ have come, these have no root in anything but human teaching and tradition. Then he says in verse 23, such regulations, he says, I'll concede, have an appearance of wisdom, doesn't it? I mean, if you ever been around someone who uh, was so uh, perceived themselves to be so spiritual and puffed up that after they got done with you, you weren't even sure whether you loved Jesus or not. You're like, I'm not even sure what's happening. One lunch with them, and I feel lower than an ant's belly. All right? And this is not new. This is not new. Paul says they, they do have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. Now listen to this. He says, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul does not say that you and I are not to live with a restraint of sensual indulgence. We absolutely are. Jesus Christ said to us, anyone who loves me will obey my commands. Anyone who loves me walks in obedience to me. But friends, we can't walk in obedience to him without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit changing us, sanctifying us, transforming us. What Paul is saying does not have the power to produce obedience is rules. Rules and more rules. Any of you tried to be highly disciplined at times in your life? So, man, you went through these periods where you really marked out everything you were going to do and not do. You're going to get up at 5 a.m. every morning. You're going to run three miles. You're going to come back. You're going to shower and sing two worship songs while you're doing that. And when you finish, you're going to get ready while you're memorizing a verse on your mirror. And after that, you're going to exegete an Old Testament uh, chapter and a New Testament chapter. And after that, you're going to spend 45 minutes in prayer kneeling and then after that, and then every evening you're going to read newspapers back when we had such things, so that you, and on and on it goes. Any of your personalities just kind of geared toward that? I'm geared toward that cyclically, you know? It's just me. Thanks a lot. Um, but you always fail at that because all those rules can't empower you to live up to them. And that's what Paul is saying here when he says they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Being free in Christ from legalism does not mean that we are free in Christ to live with license. It doesn't mean that we're free to throw off everything that we would perceive to hinder our own desires. I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do that, I'm free in Christ, so I'll do anything I want to, including sin. The way of Christ is a narrow one, church. There's both encouragement, just reality, and warning there that the way of Christ is actually quite narrow, but it's the only way to find true joy and fulfillment and life. And we know this, or we know that at least possibly it is, because we've looked for it everywhere else and been disappointed. 
everywhere else and we've been let down by everything and everyone that we've ever given ourselves to. Now the thing about a narrow path is you can fall off one side or the other, right? You can fall off the narrow path into legalism. You can fall off the narrow path into license. You fall off on the side of legalism. You start adding things, judging people, condemning people. You get a critical spirit. You're not any fun to be around. You start to fall off the other side of this path. And you live however you want. You're accountable to no one. You disregard the commands of Christ. You come and go as you please from the body of Christ without any sense of responsibility of being in Christ. You may be fun to be around, but you're destructive to people and to their walk with Christ. Or, or, and what God calls us to is we can walk the narrow path of the law of liberty. It's not legalism. It's not license. It's liberty, which the New Testament says we've been given in Christ. We've been liberated from sin and from the penalty of sin, including the sin of self-indulgence and self-idolatry. Christian liberty, freedom in Christ, means being guided by the law, the theology of love. The theology of love. And this really was the heart of Jesus' entire ministry. What was Jesus' theology? It was the theology of love. Which makes some of us, it just makes some of us nervous. It does. We're like, well, that's not enough rules. Don't worry, there are plenty of uh, imperatives. There are plenty of commands in Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. But at the center of them all is love. That's why when Jesus is asked, man, sum it up. What does God really want from us? What's most important? Can you list them in order? Maybe I'll, I'll attack the top 10 this year. Then I'll do like a top 25 list next year once I'm spiritually stronger. I, uh, some of you will remember uh, a few weeks ago when um, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars. Um, while well, I was listening to Man, his name escapes me right now. Here's the game show. Do what? Shout it out so I can know. Steve Harvey, yes. Yeah, some of you saw this. Steve Harvey's commenting on that. Thanks for helping a brother out up here. Yeah, Steve Harvey saw that and he said, look, I got to tell you guys, I'm a Christian. But I'm not a very good one. He said, I'm like a two or three on a scale of one to ten. He said, so if, Chris Wall, uh, if Will Smith walks up on stage and slaps me, his wife better get out the way when he sits back down because I'm coming after him. He said, I'm just not that formed yet. Jesus summarized what God desired by just saying, love him with everything that you are. Love him with everything that you are and love others in the same way that in Christ you love yourself. He is our Lord. We belong to him. We are called, as Paul hints at at the end of chapter two here, not to live in sensual indulgence. He just says, making a bunch of rules and, and, and legal requirements and adding them to the gospel will not empower you to live the way of Christ. There's no power in them to help you experience the liberty that Jesus calls for. I've been listening to a podcast uh, recently, just the last few days, um, called Nightmare uh, in Coachella. Nightmare in Coachella or Coachella. Uh, it's, it chronicles through, I think, six episodes, uh, an event that some of you who are older will remember, the kidnapping in broad daylight of a school bus uh, 
uh, with 26 children, ages 5 through 14 on it, and a bus driver in Calchilla, California, uh, on July 15th of 1976. I'm a 76 model, so I was just a couple of months old um, when this happened. So the kidnappers uh, kidnap, uh, they take possession of this bus, drive it out, and they bury the kids and their driver alive. They end up escaping. It's quite a remarkable story. Um, But for about two and a half days, they're trapped. As you can imagine, and many of the kids were actually elementary school kids. There were just a few preteen, teenage types among them. But as you can imagine, these kids who've lived with this all their life have had all kinds of repercussions from it. Um, Many of them spent decades trying to ever feel safe again. One of them was named Larry Park. Larry was an elementary school child when this happened. And he began having nightmares the first night he was reunited with his parents and home. Those nightmares lasted for years. He went on to develop post Traumatic stress. He struggled to hold down, hold down jobs. He ended up getting involved in drugs and alcoholism, overdrinking, anything to try and numb the pain. And then by God's grace and mercy, Larry Park became a follower of Christ. He started going to church. God grabbed him, opened his heart to faith. The elders of the church began praying for him regularly, praying over him, walking in light with him, and he began getting better and better and better. Following his salvation as he was growing in his love for Christ, he said he realized, and this is an actual quote from Larry himself. You can hear him say it on the podcast. He said, I realized I needed to go to the kidnappers who had been given basically life in prison. They were given life without possibility of parole, And then that was overturned, and they were given basically life with the possibility of parole. Two of them have been paroled. One of them is still in. Larry Park said, I needed to go to the kidnappers and apologize to them for spending all of these years hating them. And he did just that, one by one by one. This was the largest kidnapping for ransom in U.S. history. You can actually find online a picture of Larry standing with one of the kidnappers, both of them smiling. And Larry said, I realized I couldn't live as one who'd been set free from Christ, who'd been forgiven without forgiving. I couldn't live with hate in my heart toward a fellow human being who'd been created by God in the image of God without being obedient to my Savior. So he reached out to a lady named Lyra Monroe, who's the director of Restorative Justice Network. The Restorative Justice Network is an initiative of uh, the Prison Fellowship International, some of you will be familiar with. She helped him walk through that process, come to meet the kidnappers. And Larry actually advocated for the two that had been paroled, who were model inmates inside. They were in their early mid-twenties when they did this monstrous and stupid thing. And they had done everything they could do through their time in prison to be restored to turn their lives around. Larry Park is walking in Christian liberty, understanding that he's been set free 
from all the rules and regulations of the world that cannot fix us and cannot help us, but he's not been set free to serve himself and to build himself up, but rather to serve Christ, to walk in the light and in truth. And part of what that means is to provide others the same kinds of forgiveness that Larry had been provided himself. That's what you and I are called to. That's what it means to be free in Christ. It means that we're free to not sin. We're free to serve Christ with all that we are because the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that. Let's stand this morning. As we prepare to go into a time of response and reflection, I I want to encourage those of you who are uh, baptized believers this morning and feel led to do so by God's Spirit to step out while we're singing at, at any point to make your way to one of the communion stations, the front or at the back. Take a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice, make your way over to the side, pray over that as you come before the Lord. And when we do that, we're reminded of something and we look forward to something. We're reminded that uh, the completeness we have, we have in Christ. We have to live in that. We have it in Christ because his body was broken in place of ours. His blood was shed in place of ours. We're reminded that to be united with Christ in his body is to be united with him in his mission. It means our life becomes about him. Our purposes, his purposes. And we look forward to and anticipate the day of Christ's return where the fullness of his victory won on the cross will be applied to this broken world. So as you feel led, you can step out and do that. You're free also just to stand where you are, to worship, to sing, to reflect. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.